We are um, continuing in Revelations. We're doing chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to look at the church in Sardis. So go ahead and turn to Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, Sardis, just a little background on Sardis first. Sardis was once a city of great wealth and fame. One of the most important and powerful cities in the Mediterranean world. It's in what uh, today is modern-day Turkey, just like all the uh, other cities in Revelations. It was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Later, it was part of the Persian Empire, home to one of the governors of one of the provinces. Sardis was considered a mountain fortress, very difficult to capture. The Acropolis was a natural citadel on the northern spur of Mount Tmolus. It rose 1,500 feet above the lower valley. I called St. Francis Medical Center and I said, how high is your building from ground to the top to the helicopter pad? And I got a call the next day from the maintenance man. They said 175 feet. So, um, so the citadel of Sardis was about eight and a half St. Francis's on top of each other above the valley beneath it. So way, way up there. It had great natural defenses, cliffs on three sides and a river on the fourth, almost like a moat. But twice in its past history, it had been captured by uh, enemy armies. How? The people of Sardis were so complacent and overconfident that they didn't even post guards around their city. And so their enemies simply climbed up the cliffs, snuck into town, and took them over twice. By the time it was incorporated into the Roman Empire... It had lost most of its renown. One commentator I read described it almost like a city of the past, living on its present prestige, on its ancient prestige, more than its suitability to present conditions. 17 AD, it was devastated by an earthquake. The Roman Empire rebuilt it, but it never really completely recovered. And by the first century of the Christian era, which is our time, uh, that we're talking now, inhabitants could take pride only in the past. In terms of worldly fame and culture, their present life was an empty shell of past glory. Now, Sardis was a fairly strong center of Christianity until 1402, and that's when it was so completely destroyed by Tamerlane that it never rebuilt. Tamerlane was the last mongrel Mongol conqueror, it's estimated that his conquests killed about 5% of the entire population of the world. Uh, it was not uncommon for him to have his soldiers behead 100 to 200,000 people uh, from a city that resisted him. And he was famous for building towers out of human heads, kind of discouraged resistance in the future. So in the following years um, after that, any remaining Christianity was so exterminated by the advance of Islam that today not one single Christian lives in the entire valley where Sardis was located. So a little background. Now let's go to verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. 
Him here is a reference to Jesus Christ. The seven spirits of God is, is kind of code for God's Holy Spirit in His complete and full presence. Jesus is the one who sends God's Spirit to His church and who, through that Spirit, is present with His church on earth. The seven stars probably best understood as the angelic beings that God used as heavenly messengers to these seven churches. The view that the seven stars represent the bishop or pastor of each church, that also has merit. Certainly at the beginning of verse 1, where it says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, that's most logically understood to be the pastor of that church. John goes on. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Of the seven letters, this letter to the church in Sardis was, the, was probably the, the one with the most severe condemnation. From God's point of view, there really wasn't a whole lot going right in this church. The Lord knows the works they are busy doing, but they are dead works because they are not done out of faith in Jesus. Isaiah writes in chapter 64, verse 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, literally minstrel rags is what it means there. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. The church in Sardis looked spiritually vibrant on the outside. It had the reputation of being alive, but in reality, it was in a state of spiritual slumber and carelessness, whose end result would very soon be spiritual death. So this church gave a false impression that it was alive, even though it was dead, which is dishonest. And it stemmed from a lack of any honest self in evaluation. Now we, as human beings, we are naturally dishonest as sinners because we find it hard to face the painful truth about ourselves. We are not as disciplined or self-controlled or gracious or mature as we would like people to think we are. And we are more lazy and wasteful and prideful and critical than we want people to think we are. So by nature, we work hard to create lives that look better on the outside to the people around us than they do on the inside to the God who knows us. There's a big difference between how the church in Sardis appeared to people and how the church in Sardis appeared to God. One commentator referred to it as a beautifully adorned corpse in a fancy funeral parlor. Impressive on the outside, but still dead. God wasn't deceived. He knew it was disconnected from him spiritually. The form retained, but the heart gone. Christ acknowledged in word, but ignored in deed. Creeds correct and conduct respectable, respectable but life and deeds departed. His name held, his word read, his truth owned, but God himself forgotten. The activity of fellowship 
can often be mistaken as a sign of life. But in Sardis, instead of the gospel in a nutshell, we had the gospel in a coffin. Had this church lost its faith in and love for Jesus Christ? Had they deceived themselves into thinking they still had what they, at the very least, were in grave danger of losing? Think about this. There was no visible persecution or troubles from outside the church, like we've seen in some of the other churches. There appeared to be no obvious sign of false teaching inside the church, like there was in some of the other churches. Things seemed peaceful and religiously correct. So what happened? Is this what happens to bland, mild churches that keep quiet about God's truth? Churches that just want to fit into society and not make any waves? Peaceful prosperity, a calm, predictable life. Those are things that we all yearn for, right? We all want that. But spiritual struggles and suffering and trials that drive us to our knees before Jesus is a lack of these hardships dangerous to churches, to individuals or families. Can smooth sailing in life lull us to, see, lull us to sleep spiritually? How many people think that can happen? Let's see a show of hands. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all know it probably from experience. And that appears to be what happened in Sardis. This church of the dishonest dead who looked alive desperately needed the power of God's Spirit to kickstart it back to life. Now, in verse 2, Christ gives Sardis a jolting command to wake up. It needed to stir up and be stirred up by the living Spirit of God in order to come back to life. Unless they heeded Jesus' exhortations and woke up, the little bit of spiritual life they still had left would soon expire. Now, I'm sure they would have said, yes, God loves us, and we love Him. But due to their spiritual slumber... Their love did not move them or touch their hearts. It did not lead them to love others. They were sluggish, apathetic, either dying spiritually or already dead spiritually. And even worse was the fact they had no comprehension, no awareness of their true condition of spiritual deadness. They had to wake up spiritually, now. They had to repent, now. And Jesus compared repenting to waking up. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes, Love your neighbor, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So the believers in Rome were dead to, they were asleep to their duties and opportunities to love their neighbors. They needed to wake up, Paul said, to repent and change their words and actions. And I think we've all had opportunities to love our neighbors, 
that we've either slept through or chosen not uh, to do anything about. In uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 17, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus said, when the prodigal son came to his senses, i.e. when he woke up, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death? That was his, gosh, I could have had a V8 moment of <laughs> repentance. And it led him to a 180 degrees difference in his actions, a change in his actions. Now call it hitting rock bottom, running into a brick wall, falling flat on our face. We all have those moments in life when, when, when life smacks us with blazing clarity. When the light bulb goes on and things suddenly click, we come to our senses. We wake up and see things in a new light. Now, whatever we call them and whenever they come to us, those are the kinds of moments that God's Spirit can use to wake us up spiritually, to bring us to repentance and a changed course of action in life. They're not always very pleasant to get to, or to experience, they're truly gifts from God. Verse 2 continues. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. The church in Sardis had not lost everything yet. Okay? The Lord encourages those few who still had faith to be on their guard and to strengthen what was left of their faith and their numbers. However, the situation was grave. There was great danger for those in Sardis who still had some degree of faith in Christ. The same can be true for us today. No matter how strong or weak our faith is in Christ, we all have the same blessings from Christ. He is the object that our faith clings to, the source of all blessings, and he himself does not vary. I remember Pastor Clip in confirmation, and maybe some of you have this in your confirmation class. He drew a big box, and that was all the blessings of Jesus Christ, and a, and a, and a thick rope to it, and another box, same blessings, but a little tiny string on it. And he said, the object of our faith is what's important. Now, we either have a faith that's really strong and holding on to it, or a little string of a faith that's barely holding on to it. We have the same blessings. They don't change. But what varies is the strength of our faith that clings to Jesus Christ. For the faithful few in Sardis, their faith grip on Christ was rather tenuous. And it wouldn't take much for, for what faith remained to be snapped, broken, and ending in their spiritual death. Their works were not perfected or complete. That suggests they did Christian things, but did not do so completely or, or wholeheartedly. I mean, perhaps their deeds were done out of duty or habit, not out of delight or joy. Has that ever happened to us? Huh? Perhaps they had grown complacent about the gift of God's love, 
love that always shows itself in loving actions. Has that ever happened to us? Perhaps they'd grown weary of doing good or were faltering in things they had started or wanted to start for Jesus. Does that ever happen to us? The long and the short of it is that as a whole, the church in Sardis failed to follow through on the faith it supposedly had and the service it professed to be doing. The situation was grave and the response had to be immediate. First part of verse 3 says, Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. Here is God's call to repentance. Genuine repentance comes only from remembering, from bringing to mind again and again what they had originally received and heard, the word and message which brought them to faith in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 3, uh, the Galatians were starting to fall away from that original message. And he writes, did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The Galatians knew about Jesus through what Paul had taught them. They had received this incredible news with deep joy, but now they were in danger of drifting away from the gospel of Christ back to the laws of man. And any time we drift away from Jesus, any time we forget what we had or knew about Jesus, we end up trying to do it on our own. And we will always fail. We may look alive on the outside, but God will know the truth about us on the inside. We need to remember once again that we have what we received in baptism, what we heard through God's word, and holding on to that word through the power of God's spirit, we can be brought to repentance. Paul writes in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it, and repent. The first two verbs there, remember and obey, are present imperatives in Greek. And so they encourage ongoing activity. Keep on remembering. Keep on obeying. The third verb, repent, is a tense that calls for urgent action. In other words, repent now. Yesterday. So the, the NIV translation of this verse kind of makes it sound like remember, obey, and repent are three equal separate actions. Uh, most of you probably have NIVs. A more accurate understanding of this phrase is to make the action of repentance the end result, what grows out of remembering and obeying what was received and heard. So it's not so much remember and obey what you've received and heard and repent, but here's a better way of understanding it. Keep on remembering and keep on obeying what you have received and heard so that you repent now and always. The result of faithfully remembering and keeping the word we have received and heard, 
the result is that our repentance grows out of that. What grows out of that is an ongoing attitude of humility and daily dependence on God's grace. It's just how we live. To repent as God desires, we must cling to and remember what we have received and heard. That is crucial for us spiritually. Second part of verse 3. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what moment I will come to you. Not a good thing to hear. This is not a reference to Christ's second coming. His coming here is tied to whether or not the church repents. It refers to a day when some kind of judgment will fall on the church of Sardis if they do not repent. The warnings of Jesus connect endurance and survival with watchfulness. 1 Peter 5.8 right, reads, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, i.e., watch out for him. Your survival depends upon it. Peter maybe was remembering a night some 30 years earlier when he fell asleep in the garden while Jesus was praying, and then a few hours later lost control and denied three times with curses that he even knew who Jesus was. I mean, Peter didn't forget about that. Are there times in our own lives when we have fallen asleep or lost control? When we've denied Jesus by our words and actions or by our lack of words and actions? I'm guessing so. Those who fail to keep watch are on the verge of spiritual death. And if those in the church of Sardis did not wake up, Christ would come like a thief. This was a warning of impending judgment. Things had to change. And in his mercy, Jesus was giving them another chance to change. More time to change, to say yes to him before it was too late. This is the same message Jesus gives to his people everywhere, including today. Stop playing church. Wake up before it's too late. Keep on remembering. Keep on obeying what you have received and heard so that you repent now. So that you believe the good news about Jesus, about his death, his resurrection, his love for you. His words to us today as well. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Apparently, there were more unbelievers in the church in Sardis than true believers in Christ. Now, what would that look like? What would that feel like to belong to a church like that? It would be different, wouldn't it? The majority of folks there were simply going through the motions of religion. But still, we're told, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. While most were spiritually dead and soiled by sin, a few people were still faithful to Christ and had not soiled their clothes. Now, how do we soil our clothes? Well, by trying to make ourselves righteous in God's eyes 
through our own lives. Our own words, our own works. This is what we automatically do whenever we drift away from or turn away from Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That makes us unworthy in God's eyes. Flip side, what makes us worthy in God's eyes? One thing only, being clothed with Christ and His righteousness. Being clothed with His gift to us through the forgiveness that He won for each of us on the cross. How we live our lives as God's people does not make us God's people. The gift of faith in Jesus Christ makes us God's people. Got to get that and hang on to that. At the same time, though, true faith in Christ will always show up in our lives as God's people. In works that show others that we're God's people. So it depends on the question you're asking. Paul asked this question. How do I myself know that I am saved? We have his spirit-inspired answer in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this faith is not from yourselves. It too is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, my hope and confidence for eternal life, and yours also, rests 100% on what Jesus Christ did for us through his life on earth, his death on the cross, and his resurrection on Easter. That is what we cling to and find comfort in whenever we ask, how do we know I'm saved? James, on the other hand, asked this question. How does someone else know that I'm saved? He asked the opposite question. We have his spirit-inspired answer in James 2. What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? As a body without breath is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This word just gave Luther the creeps. I'm telling you, he really had to wrestle with it. In other words, someone else can only see my faith in Christ by what they see happening in my life. True faith in Christ will be visible in life. Faith will foster attitudes and thoughts and words and deeds that honor Christ and bless others in his name. No one can see faith in our heart, but they can see it in action in our life. And there were still a few in the church in Sardis who, through faith in Christ, led lives that were not soiled by sin, but instead were filled with visible words and deeds that honored him. They were awake and alive spiritually. Of these people, Jesus said, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Anyone who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. Now, white garments are mentioned five other times in Revelation. In chapter 7, the great multitude of the saved wear robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. 
There's a paradox for you that makes a point. The color white stands for God's people made spiritually pure and completely justified before God by the red of Jesus' blood. White robes symbolize the blood and righteousness of Christ, which covers all sins, covers the sins of all who repent, who are baptized and who believe in him for eternal life. Now, these white robes were given to the believers in Sardis as a gift from God, not as wages that they earned. We do not justify ourselves by good works. We are made spiritually right by the work of Christ on our behalf. He performed, he did all these things so that we don't have to. He overcame sin and death and Satan so that as God's people, you and I would not have to live under threats and fear of any of these enemies. Now, we may not feel like an overcomer every day, though. Things happen in life. People do things in life. We fail in life. We've all been there. Satan uses all of these things to try and convince us that we are failures. That we're powerless and hopeless. That we have nothing left to live for. But he is lying. And our response to him is simply to remember the promises of God's word. 1 John 5 verse 5 says, Anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God has already overcome the world. Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters. In all of the things that happen to us, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. For I am convinced that nothing will ever separate us from the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And then he, Romans 8 verse 1, Paul writes, There is no condemnation left, none whatsoever, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, in the blood he shed for us, because of what he has done for us, we are worthy in God's eyes. We are already dressed in robes of white. Second part of verse 5. Those wearing white robes, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. The true believers in Sardis, those who were righteous in God's eyes through faith in Christ, they were assured that their names would appear in the book of life. This book of life was God's register where all who belong to him have their names written down. The entering of a person's name in the book of life is a metaphor for salvation and eternal life. The Old Testament speaks of a divine ledger, so it's a concept that was understood by Jewish believers in Christ. And the metaphor would have also made sense to non-Jewish Christians in Sardis. Why? Because all ancient cities in the Greek world kept official ledgers, registers, kept official books listing the names of all the citizens. Sardis, as the capital of a western province in the Persian Empire, would have had written down in their royal archives 
the names of all citizens for a large surrounding area. So that's a metaphor they would have gotten. It is significant to note that back in those times, the names of criminals, people who broke the laws, were removed from the register of that city. And with the loss of their name came the loss of their citizenship. Spiritually, that very same fate should have fallen on each one of us. It is what we deserve for breaking the law for our sins. And yet, through the gift of grace and forgiveness and salvation in Christ, our own names, yours and mine, are also written in God's book of life. And no one, no one can take out of that book a name that God has entered in that book. Verse 6, He who has an ear to hear, let him wake up and hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.